I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. In our continued uh, study of Jesus in the Old Testament, we've come to the topic that I've been very excited to talk about, which is the angel of the Lord. We get this character throughout the Old Testament where multiple times he shows up, and the question is, you read the details about him, you go, who is this? Like, is this an angel or is this Yahweh? Is this God? Who is this person exactly? So what we're going to do, I'll give you the format uh, for how I'm going to cover this. Hopefully we'll get it all done tonight, but I'm not going to promise that. Um, My plan is this. First, we'll talk about who the angel of the Lord is by looking, you know, systematically through those passages, multiple appearances of this particular interesting character in the Old Testament. Then I want to answer the question, um, even if I identify this as Yahweh, as God, why do I say it's Jesus? Why, what justification would I have for suggesting that this, this angel of the Lord is actually Jesus? And then I want to start to look into objections. And that might be where we run out of time. So if, if we run out, we'll, we'll pick up next time at the exact same spot. But I want to look at objections because I think it's really important. What, I've, what I see in the teaching I, as I was researching for this is people teach about how, who the angel of the Lord is from like, they're kind of Christians teaching to the Christian audience. But then there's the non-Trinitarian groups who teach about the angel of the Lord and they love nothing more than to harp on that issue. And they have lots of videos online, but we, we never see the two sides interacting. And so I would like to bring those objections up after we've walked through all the texts and show why I think that those objections don't stand. It's important that we cover them though, because at first they sound very impressive, (laughs) but then you think about them a little bit and, and I think it might help. So um, our main goal, as we look at these different passages, we're starting in Genesis 16 verse seven. The main goal is just understanding who is this person? So I'm going to, I'm going to skip over, you know, things like details about the story that are unrelated to identifying who this person is. I'll skip over a lot of that stuff. So it's sort of, sort of we're digging in for a specific purpose. Um, so here we are in Genesis 16, verse 7. Hagar is running away from Sarai. Hagar is pregnant. Um, at Sarai's request, Hagar and Abraham or Abram sleep together. Then they produce, and she, she becomes his concubine. All this kind of weird stuff goes on. And of course, tension arises when she becomes pregnant, despises Sarah, and she runs away. Um, so verse 7, the angel of the Lord, and there's the first time we get that, that phrase coming up in the Bible. This is the very first instance of it. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now let's just say this. So far, the identity of this particular individual is unknown, right? He's called the angel of the Lord. And that's probably in capitals in your, in your Bible there. That's Yahweh. This is God's actual name. So, right. So this is the angel of Yahweh. And so um, we don't know who he is just yet, but let's keep reading verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And now we go, huh, you're going to multiply her offspring? You're the angel of the Lord and you're the one doing the multiplying? This sounds kind of like what God said to Abraham. I will multiply your offspring. Oh, that's interesting. But the angel of the Lord here is claiming that he'll be the one to multiply the offspring. That's just interesting. Um, verse 11, and the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Okay, well, in, in verse 9, the implication is, or was that verse 10? The implication was this angel of the Lord is actually Yahweh because he's the one doing the multiplying. That language seems to speak of God and his promise to Abraham. 
But then we get to verse 11, and the angel of Yahweh speaks about Yahweh. The Lord has heard your affliction, so Yahweh is a different person. Verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. He shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have I seen him. Excuse me, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Forgive me, I, I still quote the New King James unintentionally without thinking about it. Paula pointed that out the other day. She's like, you keep quoting the New King James even though you're reading the ESV. It's not on purpose. Um, so what did she say in verse 13 that was, in my mind, just blows my mind. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. And then she says to make, if, in case it couldn't be more clear, truly here I have seen him who looks after me, who is God, clearly in the text. So we have this individual who comes, he's the angel of the Lord in this very first instance occurrence of this phrase, the angel of the Lord. He shows up, he speaks on behalf of Yahweh, he talks as though he is Yahweh, he says, I will multiply your descendants, yet he talks about Yahweh like Yahweh is somebody else. That's interesting, huh? And then she says, he was Yahweh, <laughs> and I saw him, and he spoke to me. So she identifies him as Yahweh. Um, in fact, that phrase, who spoke to her, this is, some, some people would say, well, this is obviously not Yahweh, who's, you know, the angel spoke and Yahweh also spoke. But in verse 8, 9, 10, 11, and then finally 13, the, the person speaking is the angel of the Lord. So clearly this is the angel of the Lord who's, who's being spoken of here. Um, yes, okay, so that's, that's the first instance, first occurrence of the angel of the Lord. And, and you see what we're going to do. We're just going to put the pieces together. We'll read the count and go, who could this person be? So it's a really interesting kind of Bible study when you think about it. And it really boils down to the glory of Jesus Christ at the end of the story when you, when you really put it all together. So let's look at Genesis 21. We have another instance where we get the angel of the Lord. In fact, specifically, it's the angel of God. And sometimes this individual is called the angel of the Lord. Sometimes he's called the angel of God. <clears throat> so Genesis 21, verse 17, it says, And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her. So we're back to Hagar again. Later on, Ishmael's actually a child now. And here, um, God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. I, for I, me, I will make him into a great nation. Now who's who's speaking here? It says God heard the voice, and the angel of God calls to Hagar. That's in verse eleven or verse seventeen. Then in verse eighteen, continuing to speak, it's the angel of God who's speaking, and he says again, I will make him into a great nation. So I, I think that this is interesting. This once again we're we're getting this sort of muddying of the waters. Who's who's speaking here? Is this the angel of the Lord or is this the Lord? And I think, and this is what I'm going to say throughout the, as we look at these different texts, the muddying, the confusion is intentional. Maybe sometimes when the Bible makes things unclear, it's unclear on purpose, because that's the point. So let's let's keep reading. So we'll get to Abraham offering Isaac, and that's in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Verse 1 of Genesis 22, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. 
He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So who speaks to Abraham? God. Clearly God in this text. It's God speaking to Abraham, and he's going to be offering his son. And who do you think is, it is implied? Who will Abraham offer his son to? Not Baal. Right? God. He's going to offer his son to God. That's from God's own command. So this is clearly God. But then let's... Keep reading. Verse um, 13, as we keep, I'm sorry, verse 10, as we keep going through Genesis 22. So then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord, and now we get this, this individual again, called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And notice even the, the way he calls is identical to the way God called earlier. God called um, and he says, Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. So the angel of the Lord calls him from heaven, says, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Okay, so at this point in the text, I'm going, okay, this angel of the Lord's not God. Because he goes, don't touch him because I know you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Wait, wait a minute. In, in verse 1, God, not the angel, God is the one who tells Abraham, sacrifice your son. Obviously, it's going to be to God. Then the angel of the Lord shows up and he says, I know you fear God because you haven't withheld your son from me. I think it's an intentional puzzle. <laughs> I think it's an intentional puzzle. Let's keep in mind that the scripture tells us that in Jesus, there is a mystery revealed. There is a question that's answered in the identity of Jesus Christ as we see him in the New Testament. And that, I think, connects to how we see Jesus in the Old Testament. We see oftentimes the question marks. It's, it's like the old, the old traditional church answer is Jesus to everything. Well, in some cases, it really is. <laughs> and in this sense, we see Jesus in the Old Testament, I believe. So, um, um, let's keep reading in verse 13. Let's... Uh, Let's look on. It says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorn, his horns, excuse me. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, now who's, who's calling to Abraham now? The angel of the Lord. And he says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Okay, but that's like almost normal language for a prophet. Thus saith the Lord. Okay, so now he seems to be separate from Yahweh or different than Yahweh. So by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Well, who's doing the blessing now? Well, now it's God, right? The angel's saying God will bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sands on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So I think that there's this natural tension. I mean, we have the angel of the Lord saying, I'm going to do this, Abraham. I will bless you. He t says, I'm going to bless uh, Ishmael and, as well. But then here we have him saying, God says he'll bless. Well, what's going on here? Let's look at Genesis 31. Here's another, uh, another passage. Genesis chapter 31. And while you're on your way there, um, this actually did puzzle ancient Israelites. And there were even those who, and I may, I may do more research on this and bring it to you guys sometime, but there were even those who believed in sort of 
two powers, two different sort of it's hard to use language to describe what they were thinking, but they were thinking there were like two Yahwehs somehow because they were reading these texts going, how do we explain this? And it wasn't until like the second century after Christ that they made that a heresy in Judaism and said, that's not appropriate. You can't say that sort of thing. Um, so it's interesting as it sort of lays the groundwork for understanding who Jesus is later on, I think. Um, Genesis 31 verse 11. We get the angel of God again. It says, then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. So here we have the angel of God. And so far, he's just the angel of God. You would would naturally not think this was God. You would just think it's the angel of God, a messenger of God. But in verse 13, he continues speaking and he says this, I am the God of Bethel. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, I am the God of Bethel. He doesn't say, the Lord declares. He just says, straight out, let's read it again in context, right? Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Here, this to me is is even stronger than everything we've heard so far. Because the angel just straight up says, I'm God. I'm God. He just declares himself, I am the God of Bethel. He doesn't say the Lord says or anything like that. He just declares it. In Genesis 28, we actually get that story of Bethel. Um, So let me read to you really quick what he's referring to when he says, I'm the God of Bethel. It's it's, uh, Genesis 28, 12. He says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give you. I will give to you and to your offspring. So that God, this angel says, I am that God. That's pretty clear. I don't know what I would do with this except for have to acknowledge that in some sense, the angel is God. It's Yahweh. But in another sense, the angel of the Lord seems to speak as though Yahweh is somehow other. So it's really interesting stuff. So that same Jacob... Years later, he speaks a blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh. You might be familiar with this. These are, these are two boys, and he switches his hands over, so he blesses the older versus the younger, and, and it's kind of controversial stuff going on there. And uh, in Genesis 48, we read about it, Genesis 48, 15. And let's, let's listen to how he blesses them. They are Joseph's sons. And so in verse 15, it says, And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. That's interesting, isn't it? He says, um, God, who is this person? God, who is this person? The angel, who is this person? And then singular, bless the boys. The blessings coming from God, who is also the angel. The angel who's redeemed me from all evil. That's really interesting. Now you could say, well, Mike, God is simply doing it through the angel. Like he's just like, God, bless the boys and do it through your angel. The problem with this sort of tactic is that it doesn't let the text say what it says. You have to add words. 
right? In order to say that, you have to go, God, who this and this, God, who this and this, the angel, the, the context is you have these three statements about one being taking an action. That's the context. You have to just add words to the text. The angel, you know, through whom God will bring this blessing. Like you have to just sort of stick it in there. It's kind of like when I'm encountering Jehovah's Witnesses and the scripture in John 5, it says that Jesus made himself equal with God. And they constantly add to the text and they say, well, that's just what the Pharisees thought. And I'll go, well, that would be convenient. It would help you with your theology. But it's not what the text actually says. You can't just add to the text. You got to let it say. So the most natural reading is, and I'll read it one more time, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. And so um, couple that with the passage we just went to where the angel of God came and said, I'm the God of Bethel. <laughs> and so it makes sense. And you can understand why he would even put it that way because that angel had been, re- that angel had been revealed as the God of Bethel. All right, let's ask, let's ask another question. At the burning bush, what happened there? Who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? So let's look at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And we're going to read a big chunk of this passage. And by putting all this together, you can see that there is a consistent flow of thought. This is not... Um, chicanery (laughs) this is not like you know bible study trickery going on this is just the text itself and exodus 3 it says now moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law jethro the priest of midian and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to horeb the mountain of god and the angel of the lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush i wonder how many of us have read this and didn't realize the person in the bush is the angel of the lord He appears out of a flame of fire, or in a flame of fire, um, out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And that's the thing that caught his attention. He's like, how is it? It's like on fire, but it's still got green leaves. Like, what's going on? And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And by the way, when you're a shepherd out in the middle of nowhere, that's a really interesting thing to go look at. I mean, I, maybe, maybe nowadays we're harder to entertain, but I'd be like, what is that exactly? He wanted to go check it out. I mean, if you have a funny looking cricket, you'll probably follow it around for a little while out there, I imagine. So um, verse four, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Wait, who's in the bush though? The angel of the Lord. Who calls to Moses out of the bush? God. It's God speaking from the bush, but the angel of the Lord is in the bush. Let's keep reading. It says, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now this is okay for the angel of the Lord to actually be God in some sense, because we've already got the groundwork laid in Genesis for this concept. So Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So the only thing that we know that he can see is the fire. And the angel of the Lord appears in the fire. And now it's saying that he doesn't want to look at God. And the only visible thing that we know that he can look at is the angel of the Lord in the fire. So the the identity of these two beings is being um, uh, merged in some sense. Then in verse 7, Then the Lord said, 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them. And he goes on and talks about what he's going to do. I just want to point out that it's Yahweh who speaks here, according to verse 7. And then in verse 11, but Moses said to God, so he's talking to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel um, out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. God says God will be with him. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And now we have God referring to God in the second person. That's interesting. Or is that third person? Third person. Yeah, second person would be you. So you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall you say to them? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I want to remember these things because we're going to come back to them a little bit later. Verse 16, as we keep reading, it says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me. Question, why on earth does verse two say the angel of the Lord appeared to him? And then down in verse 16, he's told, tell him God appeared to you. Wait, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. That's the language. And God appeared to Moses. That's, I think, pretty interesting. In Acts chapter 7, we read about uh, Stephen as he gives kind of this long history lesson of Israel to the people who are stoning him. It's, he's the first martyr of the early church. And he says this about Abraham, or excuse me, about uh, the burning bush passage in verse 30 of Acts Chapter 7. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Isn't it interesting how, like, even the way he says it is delicate? Like, Stephen's way of talking about it is like delicate, like he's trying to let the text speak. So he goes, The angel of the Lord appeared, and he drew near, and he heard the voice of the Lord. Maybe, you know, they're just wanting to preserve the difficulty that the text presents us with. I think that's kind of interesting. Um, now, if the angel of the Lord is not, in fact, God in this burning bush passage, then I don't really know what function he serves. Why is he brought up at all? That's interesting. All right, Exodus 23. Exodus chapter 23. Remember that God told Moses that he was going to be with them? I will be with you. Well, in Exodus 23, verse 20, he says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. For my name is in him. My name is in him. That's a pretty profound thing to say. God's name is in him. And we don't think his name means just a title. Obviously, name means more than that to God. Now, some people say um, that this means the angel has to be God because God would never share his name with anyone other than himself. And that may be the case. I'm not sure. I'd like to have more clarity on scripture from that if I'm going to make that point. But I will say this. Later on in John 17, 6, Jesus shows up and he says, I have manifested your name. He's talking to the Father. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. He says, I've manifested your name. Jesus shows up and tells him, I've brought the name of God 
to these people. And this angel in the Old Testament, it's said of him that God's name is in him. And that would marry well with the concept of who Jesus is. This works perfectly fine in Christian theology. And that's probably the biggest case for it. It just works so easily for this angel of the Lord person to be the second person of the Trinity, to be Jesus. Because Jesus could talk in all the ways the angel of the Lord talks. Think about this. He could talk about God as though God is somehow other. And he can also talk about God as though he's God. He could speak on behalf of God as though he's God because he is. But he could also speak of the Father totally as though he's somehow different than him. And that terminology is laid out here in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Jesus shows up. I think that sometimes Christians don't realize how Old Testament our faith actually is um, until we actually get into it. So we'll keep reading here. Um, in Exodus 23, I share with you that there's that God says, I'm going to send an angel before you. My name is in him. Be careful to listen to what he says. Well, in Judges chapter 2, I think this concept comes up again. In Judges chapter 2, it says in verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord, here, here he shows up again, went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and, said, and he said, I brought you, and let's just get this, he's actually traveling, goes on a journey, from one city to another city, and he's proclaiming a message as he goes. That's kind of how you had to give messages back in the day. Like if you want everyone to know something, you just have to walk all over the place saying it over and over again. And that's how he does this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. Wait, it's, it's the angel of the Lord, but he claims credit for bringing them up out of Egypt. In fact, he claims credit for being the one who swore and made oaths to the fathers of the people of Israel. That would be God, right? And it continues, I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you've not obeyed my voice. Now flash back to Exodus twenty three twenty one, where God says, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice the angel of the Lord. Obey the angel's voice. And then here in Judges chapter 2 verse 2, he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. And he's speaking as though he's God and he's, yet he's the angel. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their goads or their gods, sorry, their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So that seems to be pretty consistent. It makes a lot of sense. It makes the most sense. Is the simplest explanation is that this is basically a prefiguring of the the plurality that is in God. He's three in one. You know, there's there's it's not just God is that's it. You know, rather there's like Father, Son, Spirit, three persons, one being. And so we're getting this really sort of the groundwork laid, the preparation for this is laid in the Old Testament, more clearly revealed in the New, but it's there. Now, notice this, this, this angel of the Lord says, I'm the one that made the covenant with your fathers. I made the oath or the promises to your fathers. But Genesis 17, here's what it says about the oath, the promise, and notice who's making the promise. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So God appears but here's the interesting thing. God appears. Abraham saw something that represented God. 
Well, what I could do by putting all these texts together is say in Genesis 17, Abraham must have seen the angel of the Lord. Because he comes later, that same angel, and says, I swore to your fathers. Well, very interesting. So he speaks as if he is God, not just a messenger. <clears throat> and most messengers don't really do this sort of thing. They don't go up and, they, you know, they'll speak even as if they are. The, you know, so-and-so says you need to do this, do it. But they don't, like, impersonate them and then straight up say, yeah, I'm, I'm the person. I'm me. I, I'm, the, I'm the God of Bethel. They don't typically say that sort of thing. So Judges chapter 6, let's keep going. Did you know there was more? <laughs> Judges chapter 6, verse 11. This is a really uh, interesting story. It's the beginning of the story of Gideon, who, like the book of Judges, starts well and ends poorly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, so Gideon here in verse 11 of Judges 6, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree of Ophrah. Let's just remember where the angel of the Lord is. He sits down under a tree. He's hanging out under this terebinth tree, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. At some point in your, in your life, you read this passage and it hits you. You don't beat out wheat in a wine press. You do that because, you, because there's walls to a wine press, so you're hiding while you're whacking the wheat out because the Midianites would take it. So I, I don't know. I just think that's a really interesting observation. Verse 12, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And then continuing on verse 14, and remember our focus is who is this angel? Uh, and the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? This is interesting. So we have the angel of the Lord shows up, like physically, visibly present, this, this, this person. And he speaks to Gideon. And then in verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, We didn't have the appearance of God. We don't know where God is. But if we're going to say God turned to him, that implies that there was some sort of presence that was so this could be the angel of the Lord, or it could not be. I think it's open to interpretation. Verse 15, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord, and it's God speaking here again, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And, and now listen to Gideon's solution on how he's going to figure out that this is legit because that's Gideon's thing he's like wait for real like he says that's his wait for real wait are you sure wait let's check again like he's he, he could have been an accountant you know like double and triple check everything and uh, and so he says uh, verse 18 please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you now who's Gideon speaking to when he uses these words he's speaking to God right he's speaking to Yahweh and he's and and obviously Yahweh's present because he's like stay here at this location. I'm going to bring a gift and present it before you. I'm going to actually give it to you. And now we start to go. Okay, is this angel of the Lord the same as Yahweh? And he said, "I will stay till you return." Verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. He brought them to him. To who? Well, previously, it was always God, right? I mean, it was the angel of the Lord shows up, but then it's the Lord turned and spoke, and he's talking to God. So the him going backwards would be talking about God. But when you read the next few words of the verse, under the terebinth tree, 
that's the angel of the Lord. So he brings them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Poof. Gone. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of Yahweh. He's like, he's the angel of the Lord. He's like, okay, this, remember he was doing it as a, as like a test. Maybe not because he's testing God, but maybe because he's testing himself. Like, I want to make sure I'm not wrong. I'm not crazy. And so he's like, whoa, alas, oh Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And then we have at the very end, verse 23, God speaks again. How does God speak at this point? I don't know. It doesn't say. Um, the angel of the Lord vanished. He couldn't see him anymore. It doesn't actually say he was gone. It just says he vanished from his sight. So maybe he's still speaking. I don't know. Verse 23 doesn't seem to make it clear. But it's interesting to me that Gideon thought he was going to die because he's an Israelite. And he knows that when you see God, you die. Like that's what, remember Mount, at, at Mount Sinai, he's like, don't draw near. You see me, you die. Moses, I can't even show you all of, all of who I am like that because you're going to die. That's, that's interesting. So in Gideon's mind, he's, I think he's seeing God. I think that's what's implied. All right, let's, uh, let's look at another one. Judges chapter 13. And now we read about Samson's parents. Samson. Not Samsung. That's different. Samson's parents in verse 6 of Judges 13. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, so then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And that was kind of the deal with Samson. He was supposed to be set aside for God's purposes, and he, like the book of Judges, starts well and ends poorly. (laughs) You get this theme in the book of Judges, ending poorly. It's kind of a warning to us all. Um, Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Okay, so we have this this story so far. This angel of God is just the angel of God, right? I wouldn't identify it as being God. It's just, it could just be an angel. Just because it has the word the in front of angel doesn't mean it has to be like a pre-incarnate Jesus, right? It could just be an angel. But as we read on in verse 16, it says the angel of the Lord. And and here's how we get that the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, they're, they're synonymous. They're not separate beings because they're used of the same being here. So, and the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. And that's important because it says here, for Manoah did not know that he was the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. It seems to me that even though they were Israelites, in the times of Judges, there was all sorts of paganism invading into the Israelite people. It may have been that Manoah wasn't sure what God this being was representing. And so he says, if you're going to offer it, you better offer it to Yahweh. Like, don't don't offer it to, say, Baal, for that, for for example. So Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And this is one of the most interesting verses in the Old Testament. 
he says, um, uh, and the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Huh? That is, I mean, that's just confusing. It's, what do you mean by that? Why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? Wonderful. His name is, does that mean his name is wonderful? Like, call me wonderful? Or something about the quality of my name is that it's wonderful. Well, I know that in Isaiah, it tells us that his name shall be called wonderful, speaking prophetically of Christ. Wonderful, counselor, right? Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is, this is interesting to me. So verse 19, so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to Yahweh, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. Now before we look at how they respond to this, I think that let's just say this is really a pre-incarnate Jesus and he ascends in the sacrifice in the smoke of the sacrifice and I just I just that just hits my heart I mean Christ was the the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world Um, but then in verse 21 it says the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife then Manoah knew that he was the angel of Yahweh so he's like okay for sure this was all legit and real kind of like Gideon it's like God's proved himself and Manoah said to his wife that was awesome I'd love to do that again. No, no. He says, we are going to die. We shall surely die for we have seen God. So Manoah is convinced that what he just saw was, in fact, God. Now, if this was just an isolated passage, fine. But when you put all these together, it seems to be a clear message that the angel of the Lord is somehow God. Yet different than Yahweh at the same time as being Yahweh. Now let me bring into you one of the most puzzling New Testament verses, John 1.18. After we've covered all this stuff, I feel like now I can bring this in and you're going to go, oh. John 1.18, Jesus says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What? You've never seen God, but God who's at the Father's side, speaking of obviously the Father, right? But God, the Son, who's at the Father's side, He's made him known. This is one of the reasons, one of the verses why I would say this is Jesus in the Old Testament. Because he's the one making him known. He's the one proclaiming who God is. He can say, you've never seen the Father, but I have showed him to you. Interesting, the tension about how did all these Old Testament people see God, yet not see God? Ah, who's the angel of the Lord? God, yet in another sense, not. Really interesting stuff. So, um, there's actually other scriptures I'd like to get into sometime, but I, um, I'm going to say that because there's, there's sort of other verses in the old Testament that build this case for not two different Yahweh's, but this case for the blurring of the identity of, 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 of God as not only this monotheistic God, but also sometimes you have Yahweh talking about Yahweh and these kind of concepts that, that make sense with a Trinitarian Christian view of things. And it's right there. But we'll look more at those at a later time. Um, what I want to do right now is give you a couple scriptures that, in addition to the ones I just shared, give a case for why this is Jesus. Why is this Jesus? Um, there's one that I'll admit is a little controversial. It's Micah 5.2, but 
I think it's pretty significant. Micah 5.2, you know this one actually. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are little, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth uh, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And that phrasing is really interesting. From you, Bethlehem, someone's going to come forth to me and he will be the ultimate ruler. And his comings forth, oh, that's been happening forever. That's been happening going way back in time. He's ultimately will come forth, but yet he's been coming forth. That seems to me to marry very well with everything that we've done so far tonight. You know, that this angel of the Lord is, is the one who's been coming forth. Now, there's a debate on the Hebrew word there, coming forth. Um, it could also mean origins. His origins are from uh, forever, you know, that the idea that he's eternal. And so it could also mean that, and that's why I say that's slightly controversial. So um, if it means what I'm inclined to think, then that's a really good case for Jesus being identified. Anytime you see sort of a theophany, an appearance of God, to just assume it's Jesus because he's been going forth. But there's other reasons as well. Uh, John eight fifty eight. Uh, John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." It's these "I am" statements in John. Some people they use them a little recklessly, but they are legitimate "I am" statements from Jesus in the Book of John. And here's one of the most profound ones: "Before Abraham was, I am. I am. Tell them I am sent you." And we get this from multiple places in Scripture that that God is the "I am." And Jesus refers to himself as this God. In fact, this is how God identified it to himself to Moses in the burning bush. I am. So who was in the burning bush? Well, before Abraham was, I am. I think that's interesting. John 20, 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Why is that significant? Um, it's significant because we just simply have a plain and simple verification Jesus is God. Like, he is God. From all time, for all time, he's God. John 14, 9. This kind of goes with the one we shared earlier, John 1, 18, that, where he said, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Well, this goes with that. John 14, 9, he says, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you say, show us the Father? So there's another one where we're just getting the idea that Jesus is the representative. You know, he is the one who goes forth to, to, to reveal God to us. And he is also God. And that marries perfectly with this. But now there may be a question floating in your head. And here's one of the objections. Is you're, Mike, you're identifying Jesus as an angel. Like ontologically, like in his, in his nature, who he is, you can't call him an angel. Hebrews makes it very clear Jesus is not an angel. He's greater than the angels. Hebrews 1. And I would say absolutely. But we often use the word angel a little clumsily. And so the word itself simply means messenger, representative, courtier, or angel. Like you're thinking of an angelic being. But the word itself is used 213 times in the Old Testament. It's malak in the Hebrew. And it's used oftentimes of human people. Who, so it's obviously not speaking of 
their identity, it's speaking of their role. They're messengers. It's used of humans many, many times. It's also translated as messenger, not only in the plural, but in the singular. Uh, for instance, 2 Samuel eleven twenty two. So the messenger, the angel, the malak, same word, the messenger, went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. It's just a messenger. Was he, you know, doesn't have anything to do with whether he's an angelic being or a human or anything else. It's just a messenger. That's the point. Sometimes the word is translated angel, but refers to humans perhaps metaphorically, like Achish calls David an angel of God. He could, this could be a metaphor, like, oh, you're, you're, you know, you're an angel. You know, like we use it kind of metaphorically saying that they're, they're a great help or really nice to us or something like that. So that's one of the objections is, but you know, you can't use the word angel to refer to Jesus. You're changing who he is. But yet all the work we just did was to say, this angel is clearly Yahweh. Right? And, in a sense, not. And that is Jesus, right? He is God, but he's not the Father. Um, and that marries perfectly well. And it works with the terminology of angel. I actually, one day, I'd love to do, for my own sake, just more studies into the concept of angels and different types of angelic beings. We don't have a whole lot of information in Scripture, but we have more than we probably realize uh, in the text. So one day, one day I'll, I'd like to do that. Um, um, another objection, because I do have time for some objections, so this is good. The Jewish principle of agency, this will come up. Anybody who wants to refute this, usually, here's how it goes. They're oftentimes coming from a perspective where they do not believe Jesus is, is, is God eternal, right? They don't believe that to begin with. So they, of course, have to refute this whole angel of the Lord thing because it's going to come and get thrown in their face. So they will all bring up this concept, uh, shaliah, the, the Hebrew principle of agency. And it goes like this. It's, it's like a legal thing almost. Um, the person who goes, who is sent, is as the person who sent them because they're their agent. So they can speak on their behalf. They can speak like it's them talking. That's the Jewish principle. Uh, the Jewish legal emissary or agent, that's what that person is. The Shalia performs an act of legal significance, it says, um, for the benefit of the sender as opposed to him or herself. It's comparable to the Hebrew term from the Greek world, Apostolos, which I, I got from a, a website that was trying to debunk the angel of the Lord being Jesus. So, so I'm trying to get this information from them. So it goes like this. A person's agent is regarded as the person himself. And they would say something like this. Mike, I know it may seem like the angel of the Lord is Yahweh because he speaks in the first person as though he's Yahweh. But this is just ignorance of the culture. You're just so unaware of Jewish thinking. You're too Gentile minded and you just don't know. That it's the normal conventions of ancient Jews that the principle of agency, that well-known concept where a, an agent is as the one who sent him, that this clearly allows that person to speak and sound like they're God when they're not God. So, therefore, they're not God. And for an example, they'll go to, I think there's only one passage they would go to in Deuteronomy. Uh, I didn't get it in my notes, unfortunately. But where Moses, he talks, and at one point he shifts, and it sounds like he's talking as though he's God. And it, it's, however, may I point out, it's not nearly as profound or clear as the statements from the angel of the Lord that we've already read. This may well be the principle of agency. And that's my response. It's unwise to argue that this principle doesn't exist. That's not wise at all. But I feel like the people who want to use shaliah to say the, the angel of the Lord is not Jesus, they're just blowing it way out of proportion. It just seems like totally abusing the principle. The principle is like a legal thing. I can, I can speak on their behalf, but they don't imitate them. That doesn't mean that they go, like, imagine if I came to you and you've got this principle in your head. 
the Shalia principle in your head. And I just want you to know, it's really me. So I show up and I say, hey, I'm Mike. I'm Mike from Hosanna. I'm Mike from the Sunday night service. And you go, probably just Shalia. He's just speaking as though he's Mike, but he's not really Mike. And I'll go, yeah, no, I'm the Mike who made those promises before. I'm the Mike who helped you out and got you through those problems. And I go, I get it. I get it. Mike sent you. You see, you just, you just don't bring the principle that far by throwing the, this principle up, which everybody does who disagrees with the angel of the Lord being Jesus. By throwing this principle up, what they've done is they've basically made it impossible. There's nothing the angel of the Lord could say to convince them that it's actually Yahweh. There's just no words that could be used. He's like, yeah, it's me. I'm Yahweh. Oh, look, we've seen God. Like, no, no, Shalia. Like, I can use this thing. It's, it's like the, the skeleton key to unlock the door and escape uh, seeing him for who he is. I, I think that's unfortunate. So um, I could share more on that, but I think that's the biggest issue is when we look at the particulars, just go back over the study in your head. Yeah, this is not a representative. Not merely a representative. Obviously is a representative, but not merely is clearly claiming to also be God. And there's very good contextual reasons to think so. I doubt the Shalia spoke like that. I really doubt it. Um, and I'd have to see specific examples to think that they did. There's another challenge, though. And that is, when I say that Jesus came and we read about the angel of the Lord and he's spoken of in, in, in humanoid terms, am I saying Jesus was physically incarnate? Before he was incarnate? Before he was in flesh? Before he came as a human? Did he came as a human? That's a, that's a problem, isn't it? I mean, that would confuse me a little bit. I'm going, hold on. When, are you saying Jesus coming as a baby, that, that's not it? That wasn't the first time? Or that wasn't the only time he appeared in human form? Um, let me respond to that. Because what we need to, know, to do now is look at the differences between Jesus coming in the incarnation and these Christophanies, these appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. And here's some of the differences. Um, appearing in some sort of body is not the same as taking on human nature, living a full human life, and dying a human death. The angel of the Lord, for instance, the Old Testament appearances, they may not really be truly human. We don't know what they are. They do things humans can't do. Like, they show up and they disappear in a flame of fire. Like, you try that. Like this was, there's something else going on here, right? There's not, they may not really truly be human. They may just be appearing in this form for this cause, which explains like the vanishing and things like that. The Old Testament appearances, maybe perhaps you could say they even are human, but simply not involve a human fallen nature. There's no fallen nature. So there's no sin nature that's there. There's no temptations that are there. It's not really our form. It's just a form like ours. If the, if, and that's an option, although I, I'm, I'm inclined to not even think that it's fully human. Um, the Old Testament appearances, these, these angel of the Lord appearances, they did not involve human parentage or birth. It's not like the angel of the Lord gestated in a womb, came out, lived a human life, and then showed up and was like, hey, I'm here. That never happened. That happened with Jesus when he shows up in, uh, in Mary's womb and he lives a full human life. So there's a radical difference. Another issue is the Old Testament appearances are not a humbled condescension coming down lowly. The angel of the Lord shows up and he's pretty glorious when he comes. And they're like, I'm going to die, right? People saw Jesus. They didn't think I'm going to die because he humbled himself lowly and came actually as a human, not just in some sort of representative, you know, shape or size, but he came as a human. So even though there may well be appearances of Christ, and I think that they are, 
personally. Um, uh, he's not lowly. He's not truly human. He's not represented, representative of the human race. He doesn't represent all of us in those. He represents simply God coming to, uh, to communicate. Um, and didn't die, didn't get born, and didn't live a human life didn't suffer temptations. Like it's completely unlike the incarnation. So hopefully that answers the question to say the incarnation different than a Christophany. Christophany, we're not even sure if there was blood in those veins or what. Uh, we don't know. Um, but with Jesus, we know exactly what he was and who he came as. And if somebody after all this was like, Mike, I'm still not convinced. Like I just don't believe you. The angel of the Lord is, 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 is Jesus. I would say the worst case scenario is that the angel of the Lord is not Jesus. Um, but still somehow stands as a prefigurement of Jesus so that we can get the concepts of who Jesus would be when he showed up. Because you still can't escape it. He's like, he's like Yahweh, and I'm the angel of the Lord. And yet Yahweh says, and yet I say. And there's this, this confusion of persons, in a sense, that's meant to set us up so that we can have a better understanding of the Trinity. A couple questions that might come up is, uh, is, is every single instance of the phrase, the angel of the Lord or the angel of God, is every instance representing a Christophany? And I'm not convinced it is. I think you just have to look at each passage um, because it's a generic phrase. Like, the angel of the Lord could be, who's that? Oh, that's the angel. Angel of who? Oh, the angel of the Lord. Like This, this could be a generic terminology as well. Um, so I consider looking at the individual cases. I think it's like 39 times it shows up altogether. And, um, yeah, and I think that's, I think that's actually all I wanted to say about that. But what I'll do is, I just realized I'm at the end of my notes, um, and it's blank. So what I want to do next week, next time we meet, is I want to talk about, uh, kind of build on this and talk about this further concept of there being sort of what some people, like I said, these two powers, these two, like Yahweh's one, like the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet you have things like, not, not just when it uses the phrase, phrase the angel of the Lord, but other instances in the Old Testament where it draws out this sort of difference between Yahweh and Yahweh. And you're like, what does this mean? And we'll talk more about that um, next time. And we'll get into the, the terminology of why John 1 uses the phrase the word to talk about Jesus. And uh, when the word of the Lord came to the people of Israel, what is that about exactly? So let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. Um, <laughs> amen to that. And we pray that you would uh, you'd just continue to guide us and give us wisdom as we handle these lofty and high concepts that we see in scripture. May we do so carefully, thoughtfully. But Jesus, um, what we realize as we read this stuff is you're, you're amazing. And when you come humbly and lowly, in a manger you live a human life and you allow people to spit upon you and curse you you brought yourself so low so that you could love us so that you could forgive us so you could redeem us and we're so grateful that we could come to know you we're just we're blown away by who you are and we pray that our minds would continue to just grow in our appreciation of the identity of this Jesus in Jesus name